Thank you very much indeed, Stephen. Wow, that has been a masterclass run through. We've gone through diagnostics, we've gone through the current therapeutic paradigm, we've gone through issues with how we actually identify people and how we put the systems in place to identify the right people, and now we've talked about therapeutics, not just what we have at the moment, which sadly is very limited, but also where things are going. I think that's a really exciting place to start this conversation. Very happy to take any questions from the floor, if there are any questions. Excellent. Why not take advantage of it? Go for it. Um, those were three superb lectures. Thank you very much. Um, you. I have a question for Quentin and Yorn and a question for Stephen. So for Quentin and Yorn, <laughs> neither of you mentioned NIS-4 as a test, the serum test, that's been validated to um, identify at-risk NASH. And I'm wondering what, what, what role you see for that test. And Let for me Steve, start out because... I'll okay, you, you want to go ahead? Because I, I'm not using it in clinic today, okay? It's a, it's a test that's uh, available. You can, you can um, of course, buy it and order it. Uh, but I think in the everyday clinic I'm seeing patients today, it's not um, an established test. Now, I think I'll probably hand it over to Quentin because... Uh, you, there's a lot to, you can detail in identifying at-risk NASH with that test, and I think that's where the strength would come in. Absolutely. So the omission of NIS-4 from that discussion was about what can you use today in your clinic. And as it stands in Europe right now, it is not a test that we can use in our clinics in a socialized health system. We can use FIB4. It's free. It's effective. We can use FibroScan. It's available to us. So I think there are a number of other biomarkers. There were a range of other things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Pro-C3. We didn't talk about some of the really exciting platforms coming up with SomaScan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's the point. We need to think, first of all, about, you know, I've said it before in a previous meeting, we don't want um, perfection to be the enemy of good. And actually, if you have something good, let's use that for now. We can worry about how we build on that in the future, and certainly will. Uh, so that would be my thoughts on that one. Stephen, what about you? I mean, NIS4 in your practice at the moment? No, it's not in my practice. Uh, I like the test. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a lot to it, particularly in finding the, the NASH patient with F2 or greater disease. There are a couple things we need to do with that test still. We need to validate it outside of the elafibrinor uh, treatment program because it was developed on Golden 505 and then uh, validated off of Resolve It. So I think a different data set would be helpful to have. Also, I think we need to look at it for different contexts of use. I mean, could this be predictive of outcomes? Could it be helpful in detecting response to therapy? So I think there's a lot. I think it's a very attractive tool, but we just need more data, and it needs to be picked up and utilized by sponsors and other programs, I believe, if we really want to generate that type of data. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Great answer. He had another question. Yeah. Oh, he's got a he wasn't Come on, then. pimping yeah. us. If I may. Yeah, please. So a question for Stephen. Um, how do you compare and contrast a liver-directed metabolic therapy with a systemic metabolic therapy? So you mentioned resmeteron. You mentioned semaglutide. How do you compare and contrast those two mechanisms? Well, there's a lot of ways we can compare and contrast. One is injectable. One is oral. So, in fact, if there's a lot of therapies that... Uh, we are developing that are injectable therapies that have pleiotrophic actions. Uh, we don't fully understand all the ways the GLP-1s work. I highlighted a couple here. Uh, but obviously, one of the ways that it works most efficaciously is on weight loss. Weight loss then 
among other mechanisms, but also driving uh, glycemic control and improvement there. Uh, so injectable effects on weight loss, effects on glycemic control, driving improvement in NASH, a THR beta liver directed oral, more liver specific in what it does, and I highlighted some of those there. Also very good effects on atherogenic lipids, particularly ApoB. It does not have effects on weight loss, and it doesn't have effects on glycemic control. So you could look at that, those two, and say, wow, what a, maybe a combination, right? Although one's injectable and one's oral, kind of gets away from my paradigm of all oral, but in the setting of the right patient, maybe induction therapy with a, a, an injectable might, might be helpful. You could apply the same rule of thumb to the FGF21 class of drugs as well. Now, not all FGF21s are created equal, as we've learned from recent publications in understanding of the mechanisms of disease and how those FGF21s are put together. They're all kind of put together to extend the half-life of the drug, but they're done differently. Some are pegylated, some have chemical modifications to the scaffolding, but that affects the balanced potency of the molecule. Maybe they don't work on beta-clotho 1, 2, and 3. They're working more on 2, or maybe just 1, or maybe 2 and 3. So that's a little more than you asked for, but, you know, you got a little bonus for asking three questions. <laughs> great, great, great answers. Thank you. But actually, you, you touched on an important point there, which is when we're thinking about therapeutics, in terms of we, we want, obviously, our liver-directed benefit, do we need an extra hepatic benefit? Where's, where's the balance there? It's desirable, clearly, but is it essential for this? Where, where, well, where would you clearly, that? I think what we need is something that doesn't make it worse, yes. right? We don't want to give a drug that's going to put our ASCVD risk patients at greater risk. Exactly. So I think the first do-no-harm principle mm -hmm. is still in play here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I suppose if there was a liver-directed therapy that knocked it out of the park but didn't do anything extra hepatically but was well-tolerated and safe, uh, you know, I'm a hepatologist, right? My focus is on the liver. But I think we have a good situation here. Yeah. We have drugs that can do both that are in development. So the good news is we don't necessarily have to think about just the myopic part of the I liver. I think that's a really important point. We possibly don't have that problem to face. John, you were going to, to come in well, on this one. Well, it brings me to a question I sometimes ask myself in, in the patient. If I have sit, a patient sitting in front of me, uh, is this guy going to develop a liver outcome or a cardiovascular outcome? And I think yeah. we're, maybe we have to get better, and it might be litmus or nimble or the big consortia that might be able to answer that question. You know, what is the main driver in that patient? I think we got a direct therapy towards that, uh, and I think you alluded to that a little bit. And we have to understand better what's the endpoint that actually uh, is important for the patient. And um, I, I still think we need to uh, um, dissect that a little better. And one helpful uh, comment, maybe you made that at the end of your presentation, Stephen, was the PNPLA3 or the mm. at-risk uh, uh, genotypes that might uh, you know, support a more rapid liver disease progression. Uh, maybe, you know, yeah. you've done a lot of work on that. Yeah, I want to ask you. You're like the founding father with Romeo and all these guys. So... Overstate. When are we going to have, so he asked, when is NIS4 going to be in the clinic? Yeah. When is PNPLA3 going to be in well, the clinic? Well, I think PNPLA3 is closer to the clinic than we imagine. Not necessarily as a diagnostic test, because ultimately we've looked at that, and it doesn't add much lift beyond what we already have. But I think we're beginning to see genetics moving forward. Therapeutic targets is one area where clearly we're seeing things happening. 
The other area, and I think this is particularly interesting, there are two things to think about. The first is risk stratification for complications. So a great example of that is HCC, isn't it? Where we know that if you, have HC, if you carry the PMPLA variant, you have a 12-fold increased risk of developing liver cancer over the background general population, seven-fold over a fatty liver population. So we begin to get an idea about the people we might worry about more if they have cirrhosis and things like that, and particularly the non-cirrhotics. The other one, and it comes back to what you were saying, Jean, was TM6SF2. Now, this is the paradigm for a genetic marker that differentiates your metabolic outcomes. So if you carry the variant form, you put the fat in your liver, you come and see Stephen, Jean, and myself. If you carry the wild-type form, you push the fat out of the liver, straight into circulation in your left main stem, you need to see the cardiologists down the corridor. So we haven't tried drugging it yet, because what would you do? You know, which, which, take the red pill if you want a heart attack, take the blue pill if you, you want something else. That's, that's probably not a winning proposition. But Yeah, the blue pill is something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> it may give you a heart attack, though. <laughs> it may give you a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Moving uh, on. It's getting late in the day. <laughs> We'll come out of that later. Um, but we've got to think about that and how it's going to actually work for us. I'm going to change the subject now. And I'm no, going to talk I gotta about ask you, in the I got to ask you another question about no, PMPLA3. No, no, no. We have to go to the phone. No, no, come go on. on. So go the PMPLA3, yeah. do you think genetic influences play a role in response to therapy? Yeah. And if they do, why aren't we measuring them more often? So I think that there is going to be a time when we have a much better understanding of the genetic background of the patients. So short answer, yes, I think it influences therapy. Next question is, can I prove it to you? And unfortunately, right now, we're not in a position to do that. We've seen trends. Actually, if we go right back to elafibrinor, we actually saw a non-significant trend to greater response in PMPLA3 carriers. It speaks to the idea that potentially individuals with more severe disease are also the individuals have greatest benefit. And so if you have a genetic contribution to the disease, you're likely to have a more active steatohepatitis. You might have more fibrosis. So I can imagine a time where we are guiding ourselves on that. I think we can also, as these trials read through, particularly the phase three trials, because we need those bigger cohorts to be sufficiently powered, that will be when we begin to understand the genetic makeup of the patients. And what I'd love to see is in phase three studies, that we should be building GWAS chips into the analysis. It's not enough to just use um, hypo, you know, the, the standard PMPLA3, TM6. There will be other genetic modifiers, and we need to be out there looking for them. So I think those are the things that we potentially could be doing there. So to the questions online, I'm going to ask this question because it's clinically relevant and it's about, non it's about diagnostics. <laughs> so I had a question from Angad on, on, on the call. Um, he says he often sees patients who um, have an ultrasound scan showing hepatic steatosis, but when they do a cap, uh, it's low. And so the, the question is, which is more reliable, the ultrasound or the cap? Sean, Stephen, what do you think? Wow. Um, so, you know, I think there's variability to these tests. That's important yep. to recognize. I think we understage, in particular, uh, lower degrees of hepatic steatosis. Uh, the, the threshold is said to be 30% on liver histology, which is not good picked up by ultrasound. Um, I guess my question back would be, what type of CAP technology do you use? There's been some yeah. refinements. Do you only do 10 measurements of CUP, or do you do the continuous measurements where you get over 200 or even more? Um, so there is some granularity to that. Mm -hmm. um, um, but in general, I think it informs us well 
on at-risk patients. Um, it's not a 100% sensitive test, is I think uh, what has to be. Yeah, I think you have to ask what the threshold he used in mm. that as well, because it's different depending on the region of the world you're in, the ethnicity that, that you're seeing. So for me in Texas, uh, if, if you're 280 or better, I, I tend to trust that mm -hmm. over anything else. It's not good at quantifying the degree of fat, but it's a good yes-no assessment. And if it's 280, I'm assuming there's fatty liver and I'm treating it as such. Mm -hmm. We go a little lower, I have to say, but uh, I think uh, that depends on the pretest probability too. Absolutely, I mean, I think the same principle. And it's also worth remembering that when, when the radiologist comes back to us and says, oh, I can see fat on an ultrasound, what they're actually doing is they're comparing, just in that, like that photograph I showed, they're comparing the brightness of the liver parenchyma to the brightness of the kidney. And if the kidney is darker than the liver, they say it's fatty liver. It is no more quantitative or accurate than which bit of the screen is brighter gray. So I really think we you know, need to bear that in mind. So I'd agree. I think the cap thresholds are quite useful. You certainly need to adjust them for the pretest probability, the ethnicity, and where you're doing it. Uh, but I think, by and large, that one's very helpful. There's a theme here. Now you're at shades of gray. Shades of I was going to make that joke in a minute. All you right. spoiled that one. <laughs> Can't work with anyone. <laughs> I was building up. That was the big finish. <laughs> <laughs> you ruined it. You're going to have to come up with something else. All right. Well, we, we, we're going to go with this one then. So, what mechanisms? Of, this is not as fun. Um, what mechanisms of action, when used in combination, do you believe will be able to demonstrate benefit on metabolic fibrosis and cardiovascular endpoints? So, mechanisms of action, combination, targeted benefits. What do, you, what do you recommend? I think there's a lot of them yeah. that are out there. I mean, just showing you that list of everything we have in phase two and what's currently in phase three, the beauty of most of the learnings we've had is that single directionality on targeting therapy we've shown doesn't generally work. We need to be pleiotrophic in our mechanism and ideally hitting something higher. So the drugs that are going forward now are drugs that are doing just that. They target multiple pathways. They have something in them that's hitting up higher in the pathway. So combining things, really it comes down to, you know, if, if you're showing a benefit purely metabolically, I question if you're really showing a benefit purely metabolically, because ultimately you're hitting the driver of fibrosis, which should be improving. I think semaglutide is a great example where the p-value didn't reach statistical significance, but yet its drug effect was the same as lanifibrinor in the phase two trial. Lanifibrinor's placebo response was lower, so the treatment effect delta reached statistical significance. With semaglutide, the treatment effect delta did not because placebo response was 30%. And they did show prevention of progression of disease, which means there's something happening there. Yeah. So I really think it just, you want drugs that help in the liver, and really the synergy is gonna come in on the extrahepatic side. If you've got a drug that's really good at weight loss or really good with glycemic control, marry that up maybe with a drug that has better atherogenic lipid effects and better lipotoxicity reduction or better liver fat content reduction. There are drugs out there that will not move liver fat but yet have significant impact on histopathology. We learned that from Celadelpar, the PPAR delta mm -hmm. agonist. 12-week endpoint, primary endpoint, 
did not move liver fat content as measured by PDFF, which is a measure of inert triglyceride. But we did see very nice improvements in non-invasive tests to include ALT, and resolution of NASH actually had a nice dose-response relationship. So I think that that's yeah. kind of the way I'm thinking. No, John, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, um, I've been thinking while you were talking, uh, is there something we can use from the biomarkers as, you know, I'd like to introduce the concept of response-guided therapy, right? We're combining potentially, if they're more advanced, more aggressive regimens, subcutaneous and oral, and if then we're able to detect a response, we might, you know, de-escalate a little bit. Um, uh, having triggered some fibrolysis, but we still need to address the metabolic risks. So I think it's, it'll be even more complex than saying, what do you want to combine? Maybe you don't have to combine everything all the time uh, and, and kind of um, need some, some outcome or some response measures to uh, determine how long we're going to go highest and then kind of de-escalate a little yeah. bit. I think one of the key things with combination, Stephen, you've said this and you, you touched on this, is we want to see combinations that are, are founded in biological plausibility. You're pairing them up because they add something to each other rather than because it is uh, an expediency or for any of the other reasons. And I think that's one of the areas where we're going to see a great deal of evolution here as we start to think about it, driven by our understanding of the mechanisms which are improving so yep. rapidly. Or you take the brakes yep. off or you apply brakes, right? So yep. imagine modulating one of the genetic risk mm. and then hitting it with a drug that drives disease down. So yeah. you're taking you know, something that's either progressing disease much more quickly or halting the ability of the drug to work, you're mitigating that, and now you're letting the drug do its job. So I think there's another role for combination. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the key thing, once again, is we know that there are only a minority of individuals who progress to those really hard endpoints. So it's got to be agents that are well tolerated, yeah. that are either safe or where the risks can be effectively mitigated. And those are key areas. So I, I think we're um, getting to the top of the hour. This has been a really What's good discussion. What's the closer? I've finished now. You should spot oh. the joke. That's, I've got nothing more. I've been working on that when Jean was speaking. <laughs> That's the hard part. That's as, the, as boom, the... boom. You see what you did there? <laughs> anyway, thank you all very much. It just leaves me to, to thank uh, my, my two comedic colleagues. Um, and thank you all very much indeed for staying with us. It's, it's been a, a really enjoyable time, and uh, take care.